I've stuck with this for so long. It was actually not the Scholes, but it was Bonhoeffer. And it was that so few people were able to do the right thing. Just that fascinating question where you have this wonderful culture that you're a part of and you're busy studying, and yet it went so wrong. And what was it in this small group of people that knew what was the right thing to do. And then when you bring the shoals in and you know that the shoals had made that appointment to be connected to the Bonhoeffers and they were already dead. And what a shock that must have been for Bonhoeffer when he heard that. Oh, those were the kids I was supposed to meet. This is Jennifer Rosenfeld, and you're listening to part two of the White Rose podcast. I'm speaking with Professor Elizabeth Bernhardt. She's the director of the Stanford Language Center and a professor of German studies at Stanford University. She is the reason that I know about the White Rose in the first place. When I was a freshman in college, she was teaching a class called resistance writing in fascist Germany, it actually isn't the area of her scholarly focus, but happens to be a passion project of hers. While she unfortunately no longer teaches the class, I was so happy to get to reconnect with her and talk about the White Rose. Did you have this course in sophomore college? Um, I did it as a freshman, actually, when you did the intro sums. Oh, Wow, what year was that? This was the fall of 2005. Whoa, wow. That, uh, sorry, that's a long time it's ago. It's a long time ago. It yeah. really is. Wow. Yes, wow. but uh, it made an impression, a very big one. Wow, so. that's amazing. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that you're not teaching it anymore. But, um... You know, someday maybe students will be a little more attuned to it again. I don't know. Mm, I hope so. It it was definitely one of the most important and memorable classes that I took. Wow, that's great. I I majored in Russian literature. Mm -hmm. Um, I studied with Lazar Fleischmann and wrote my thesis on Dr. Zhivago. And I was in the archives. You know, the Pasternak family papers are at Stanford. So I discovered this essay by Boris Pasternak's sister, Josephine, who knew two members of the White Rose. She wrote this essay in 1953. It seems like it was somewhat at the request of Kurt Huber's sister to do something to raise awareness. And alongside the essay in the archives were a series of rejection letters from different publications. And one of them offered to send her manuscript back. So the impression I got from it was that it was not ever published despite her efforts. And it made me just think about how at that time there was probably very little information available about the White Rose at all, um, unlike now when there is more. So it was very strange for me to find this. This was in 2009, and it wouldn't have meant anything to me had I not taken your class. Mm -hmm. But I just sort of felt like this is a weird, bizarre thing that's happening that I would find this And it means something to me because, you know, I don't think too many people are leafing around in those archives anyways. And most who'd come across it, I think, would just um, go right by this. So really since then, I've felt some sort of either inspiration or obligation to do something with it. 
so one of the reasons, and again, I can only speculate, but I think it's fairly good speculation. One of the reasons that her material wouldn't have been published in, what did you say, 1953? Mm -hmm. This is 10 years after. That was still a period of time when the Germans wanted no part of this. They wanted, it isn't that they were ignorant of what had occurred with the White Rose. They didn't want to hear about it because that was, you know, a huge embarrassment, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, so do we want to read about Kurt Huber? No. Do we want to hear more about these people who resisted and did the right thing? No. Um, that would have been also around the same time that the me- memorial was built at Flossenburg, which is where Bonhoeffer was murdered. And the local bishop there in whatever area of, you know, whatever German, whatever state that is there, that bishop refused to go to the chapel to consecrate it because Bonhoeffer was considered to be a traitor. So you have a fairly long period of time after the war that all of these people were considered to be traitors. The same thing happened then with all the Scholl relatives. They were treated incredibly badly. Um, in that time period after the war. They were never seen as heroic. So that's important to understand why there potentially was a suppression of what the Pasternak piece was about. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. History takes a long time to sort of sort itself out, it seems. It does, and the American perspective is always that you have a big ticker tape parade for the heroes and these people were not seen that way at all and um it was a it was a long time it was really until into the 70s where there was a a change in in that view what struck me about about it if you don't mind i'll just read a few quotes because they reminded me so much of your course and you know i've read many of the books about the white rose which focus mostly on what they did which of course is significant but your course was so much about almost the the interior scaffolding the the inner worlds they built through their reading through their studies of materials that were not commonly available. And Josephine was very attuned to that. Um, She says, Apart from the determinate moral qualities which can be inferred from their action and which must have brought them together, there are emotional features common to those who took part in the Munich demonstration. They were all romantics at heart. Even though with the rigor of people aware of an uncompromising reality, they might have scorned romanticism. They all had artistic inclinations. In particular, they all shared a profound love and understanding of music. 
having had nearly all of them some musical training. And so she and she talks about how, you know, Alexander was a sculptor. You know, they all had connections to the arts, and um, and for Josephine Pasternak, you know, she came from a very artistic, cultivated family. Her father was a famous painter. Her mother was a pianist. Her brother was a famous poet and novelist. And so I think she really understood what what it meant to have that artistic cultivation. Um, And then at the end, she writes um, basically that um, after, after the deaths of the members of the White Rose, there wasn't really anything else that happened. It, it didn't lead to anything directly. And that's sort of her conclusion or assumption for why it didn't get more attention. But she is basically saying, and this was so moving to me, that basically just because it didn't lead to anything doesn't mean it wasn't incredibly important and that there isn't something that we must learn from it. She says, the members of the, of the Munich group defy any definition. I would not call them heroes or revolutionaries, for they did not die in defending a specified order, nor in the name of a new order to come. In fact, it's difficult to judge them by accepted standards. And in trying to find a precedent, one has to go far back in history to the martyrs of early Christendom. Like them, unarmed, they exposed themselves to persecution for the sole purpose of testifying to the truth. Not unlike them, they were not bound by a creed. This is a fundamental difference. For though... All those belonging to the White Rose were profoundly religious. It was not their personal religious faith that moved them into the hands of their executioners. That was just only one side of a mind open to every kind of spirituality. A force stronger than any other in human nature, that of compassion and pity. From the heights of spiritual sublimation threw them into the abyss of human sufferings. Faced with the unspeakable anguish of the present, they did not turn away from it. They did not sacrifice the actual moment for a future which might have brought them better chances. This complete absence of calculation, this pure simplicity of heart, combined in a most unusual way with the acknowledgement of the supremacy of the mind, makes one think of the Munich group as saints of the mind. That whole passage underlines why the White Rose movement was also easily dismissed because it wasn't appropriately calculated. They didn't, there was, there was that spirit of the reckless teenagers and which at some some cold, hard level it was because they didn't, quote-unquote, accomplish anything. And, and she's, she's right about that. And so there were still today, there are Germans who will tell you that they're incredibly embarrassed by the White Rose because those foolish kids did something absolutely foolish. They didn't accomplish anything. They didn't save anybody. It was sort of a suicide pack. So packed. So you can see that all in a very 
you know, 21st century kind of, oh, how dumb. But on the other hand, she's right. It was a very saintly act to sacrifice on behalf of others with no recompense. It is a very interesting, what do you call it, sort of a view on these people. I love the fact that she underlines that it was not religious or it wasn't doctrinal, so to speak, but it was incredibly religious at some level and incredibly anti-religious and only a, a religious morality, so to speak. But, you know, Hooper, there he was, this practicing Catholic and this very sort of classically German guy who had these Germanic values, who then couldn't believe that people would violate those Germanic values of of duty and um, what we would call today sort of this upper middle class morality. It's a soup of all those of all those things. One of the things that struck me about reading this was I just thought there's no way she could have read the letters of Hans and Sophie. There's just no way. But these themes are so deeply echoed in there. Sophie talks about that quote from the French Catholic philosopher Maritain all the time, you know, but one must have a hard mind and a soft heart. And Hans talks about something like, you know, the worst thing is to go to a place of spiritual harshness and to sort of close out um, other people to write people off. So I don't know. Do you, do you think they acted rashly or do you think that their choices were, were well considered as, as young as they were? No, they weren't good choices because they were good people who died needlessly. And I can't say that's a good choice. That said, they did so much for us in the late 20th century. So they were really 19th century creatures. They weren't modern. They were, you know, that whole thing about art and romanticism and nature and viewing viewing nature in the way that Sophie in particular sees it, that's a very 19th century pre-nuclear war kind of view. So they were old, they were old souls and they were walking into a modern world that didn't, they, they were going to clash with that modern world. And so, to come into the 50s and then into the 60s, you get the sense, so so their writings about nature, they were such tree huggers before you could be a tree hugger. They were absolute environmentalists. And their brothers and sisters, so the her sister, Elizabeth marries Fritz in the end, which is a, another very 19th century thing to do. 
But anyway, they were such anti-nuclear activists. They dedicated the rest of their lives into anti-nuclear stuff before it was cool to be anti-nuclear. So, so what I'm trying to get at is that there, that the the spirit in that family, in that whole group, was so related to, so so grounded in the natural world and what they had been given by the natural world that they they just they they were clinging to that, and you see that in Sophie throughout. You know, how could this flower exist when there are all these people getting killed? All these, you know, and she's really almost, you know, it's unfair. How shall I say this? She's, she's sort of obsessed with nature in a way that doesn't seem quite healthy, at least from 21st century eyes. So, so again, to judge them from our century, they were not terribly rational. They were not terribly wise. Here's an example of what Professor Bernhardt is describing. Here's one of Sophie's letters. She writes, I've always felt, and I still do now, that I can hear the most consummate harmony resounding from field and forest. Last Sunday, as I made my way into a big, peaceful mountain valley, bathed in warm evening air that was already obscuring little details and throwing big, clear-cut outlines into relief, all my usual worries seemed to fall away from me like useless leaves, and I began to judge my preoccupations by an entirely different criterion. It seemed to me that man alone had disrupted this wonderful harmony, which I can also detect in a Bach fugue. You know, Hans kind of does the same thing about nature, but not quite as deeply sort of grounded in it. And then her concern about being the flawed human walking around perfect nature is is a is a terrible conflict, I think, for her. And that that whole in all of those letters, whether it's to Lisa or to Fritz, she's very upset with being so flawed and imperfect. And what was she going to do about that? She doesn't even know how to pray. She has to ask God to help her learn how to pray. It's just she's all tied up in knots. And then when you read those transcripts when she was interrogated, then I think you see another totally different Sophie where she's just this very rational strong person. At least that's my reading of them, that those transcripts are very different from what's in the letters. You know, and one of the things that I wonder about is kind of what what was Sophie's role in all of this? It really seems that Hans was sort of a leader in it, that a lot of the leaflets were his writings. It also seems like Alexander and his background and his perspective and his access to information provided a lot of what went into that. And, um, you know, as, as a Russian who just didn't feel like th- these were his people in Germany or that this was his fight to be a part of in any way. But for Sophie, from what I can gather, she was the treasurer. She helped with the mailings. She was there on that day in February with Hans. Um, 
but in, in many of the, the other transcripts, um, she's described as sort of, you know, she didn't say anything. She was not so involved. I guess this is the, the parts where, where we infer and guess. But I'm just curious if you have any thoughts or inferences on what, what she contributed or what her role sort of was. See, she's, she played her 19th century role as a female very well. And you see that throughout all of the female characters in the resistance. It was often the women who could protect their husbands. It was the women who could intimidate whatever Nazi soldier was around. It was women who could, and this is true historically, women often intimidate men. So she was able to play that role, whether that was buying stamps or delivering, uh, you know, and it's very unclear some of the things that she did do. There's a hint that she was running around in Stuttgart, you know, doing whatever, taking taking pamphlets, whatever. Women could pull that off because they could always bat their eyes and and get past things. My feeling based on reading Sophie's letters and diaries as well is that even though it wasn't her hand who wrote the leaflets, I believe that she was an intellectual contributor through her discussions with Hans and the others. And I think that presence counts for something in the final outcome of what this group did. Oh, what I love about my, I think my favorite Sophie story is actually how those interrogators tried on multiple occasions to get her off the hook, to say, you really didn't know anything about this, did you? And, and, and to go through that repeatedly, and she stood firm, it is my favorite, favorite part. You know, what I love about that, too, is that was sort of the very non-public form of resistance, where not that there was necessarily fame or glory for those who wrote the leaflets, but still it's a, it's a different type of of legacy and an out-in-the-world action, whereas hers was very behind the scenes. We're lucky to know about it, but it was, you know, no one was watching. It was just her choice in that moment, which I just think was so powerful and speaks to her strength of character. The same with her choice to protect her brother, to be with her brother, to do whatever, to not let him go off on his own, that she would be there. Again, those are all very female, loyalty, 19th, early 20th century characteristics. I think it's also important to remember about how young she was and her crush on the Russian guy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a cute and I, maybe I've confabulated it. No, it's in her letters. I, I saw that too. I think, it's really, <laughs> I think it's really neat that she was a girl who was interested in this Russian guy. Mm-hmm. And, and all of that was terribly normal and wonderful. And I think, did he reject her? I can't remember. I don't know what happened on his end. Maybe maybe you've read something that I haven't, but it, it yeah. seems like that from her letters. There are two diary entries in which Sophie references her feelings about Alexander Schmorel. The first is from August 1942. She writes, I've just torn a page out of my notebook because it was about Shurich, Alexander, but why should I tear him out of my heart? I'll pray to God to assign him his rightful place in it. He shall go back into the notebook with the rest, and I'll include him in my prayers every night like Fritz and the others. Fritz is her boyfriend, by the way, who's a soldier on the front. 
And the other entry about Alexander is a few months later in October. This one is a bit uh, more dramatic. She writes, This morning I was at the Schmorels looking for some books in Shurik's room. How often one wishes oneself into a state of self-deception. Months ago, I still believed my affection for Shurik was greater than for many others, but how false this illusion was from the start. It was simply my vanity that wanted to possess a person who was worth something in the estimation of others. Oh, how I disgust myself. How ludicrously I distort my own image. And no, I long for the chance to prove myself in a different way. She's very like Hans in that way, in that she's... She's got this crush on that guy, but she's writing to Fritz all at the same time. You know, her brother was such a, he had so many girls on the hook, it wasn't funny. I mean, I can't keep track of them. But um, so they both had that in them. But again, I think it's a bit of a 19th century kind of. Well, at the same time, she criticized the other girls at that camp, you know, or wherever she was working as being too frivolous and obsessed with boys. And, you know, whereas she was sort of focusing on her reading and keeping her mouth shut. So. Yes. Yes. But the, uh, oh, speaking, that's another thing I love about her is the, the fact that she had dark hair, because in my German family, it was always an embarrassment that I was the one who had dark hair. That was really not okay. And that was hard. And then that she kept her hair short, which is another thing I like. Um, and that was a, a, a part of resistance. So, you know, if she were alive today, she'd probably shave her head or her hair would be purple or something that would make her separate from the crowd. She's a very cute character. Something that I really appreciated about her was just all the dreams that she had and, uh, you know, very engaged sort of on that realm. And um, I think Hans has that dimension, too, of sort of in in the spiritual plane, but um, it was very big for her, it seems. Yeah. You know, I was reading those again and thinking they almost sounded like they were on drugs. The way that, that, I mean, I've never had that kind of a dream, but both, both of them had that. Yeah. Very strange. Very strange. So you say that, you know, they were sort of... um, 19th century individuals living in a a modern world. Can you say more about that? How did they become that way? Oh, you know, I think that's the family. That's their literacy. They were absolutely entrenched in 19th century German literature. And that, that is by and large a lot of romanticism. And then, and then they they glommed on to some French romanticism. Now they do talk about Nietzsche. Well, Hans does with the nihilism, but I don't think Sophie would ever go there. You could never be that negative about life. So she would see, you know, the old nineteenth-century German paintings with people looking out at a moonscape, moonlight on the on the forest. That's very Sophie. And I I think that is a 
And all of that literature encompasses a kind of a positive perspective on the on the human. She's not talking about Kafka. She's not talking about the nihilism. The, that's the Nietzsche. She's not into that. She's into a this much more um, delicate view of the human. And I think that then comes to an incredibly abrupt halt in 1933. That was the year Hitler became chancellor of Germany. That's the end of that kind of stuff for a modern German who's thoughtful. Well, and it seems like they, because of their family, they had access to literature and materials that others didn't have because they were banned in those times. Right. They would have read all of that stuff because their father was the one who was so into all the literary stuff. They would have had all of that before the books were banned. So yes, they would have read all of it. They would have known about it. And then when they were hanging out with um, Professor Hooper or with uh, Karl Muth, they would come back to all of that quote-unquote, sort of old stuff. Well, I think even even the family connection is something really significant because the, it, my understanding is the whole sort of agenda of the Nazi machine was to separate children from their families, to indoctrinate them into being the possession of the state and to create that bond with the hopes that they would turn in their you know friends and family members if anyone said the wrong thing. But uh, the lineage of their parents is clearly so strong Um, I I know that their father really liked that poem by Goethe about cowardly thoughts and that Hans apparently wrote it on his prison cell. Yeah. So an an example of, of the contrast, I guess, Hans was in the crowd in that large Nuremberg rally that one sees in all the documentaries. So he was in that crowd there in his uniform. And that was um, at that time, whatever that camp was, the girls and the guys were all getting together. It was, The objective was to become pregnant at the end of that, to create a real, a quote-unquote, real German so he would have experienced that and I'm sure been utterly shocked is not a good word, just absolutely grossed out by that in the same way that Sophie would have been. That would have been completely antithetical to their view of family. But, you know, the state told those young kids this was their job. Well, and a similar thing happened at the university, too, with that um, speech by the official in early 1943, who was basically yes. saying, you know, what are you, well, what are all of you doing wasting your what time, you but especially to the women here, you should be breeding right. with my soldiers and, you know. Right, so. right, right. And it was a good, what, five to seven years before right. that incident that these rallies were going on. I mean, it was just absolutely grotesque. The perversion of the family when the Shoals would have been brought up in that 19th century version of the quote-unquote good German family. And it, I mean, it seems like too, from what I've read, that um, Hans in particular, Sophie as well, but he was just such an individualist. And 
you know, really wanted to do things his way. I, and I read there was some story about how in his Nazi youth group, Hitler youth thing, he um, they had to make a banner and he and his buddies created one that was all their design and they got in big trouble yep. for it because it wasn't what they were supposed to be yep. making. And yep. he didn't like that. It, which, again, something they would have learned from their father. Their father was the first guy to be imprisoned. So there's kind of nothing new in, I guess, an expectation would have been that the the two of them would also get into trouble at some point. I guess maybe a good contrast there is is with Fritz, who did become you know, a real soldier. And as she says, you kill people. And, you know, you're right. The the shoals were not, they were in the military, but that was the way to avoid killing people. And contrast that with Fritz. And I think that's another of her, her deep-seated feelings of... Yeah, of conflict because Fritz, she was in love with Fritz and yet, um, you know, Fritz was doing a whole bunch of stuff that she didn't approve of. And would I think she said, how can two people live together who don't agree on really important things? And I think she was conflicted with that too. Yeah, you know, I think there's some connection between their, the way they associated with the natural world how they associated with God or sort of a spiritual connection. And um, I think some ideas of morality that Mm -hmm. informed all of that. And I I think this probably showed up in in Germany with Nietzsche, but such a striking example that I remember from my Russian literature studies was in the early 20th century in Russia, there was an opera called Victory Over the Sun, which was all about the trains about electricity replacing natural light and basically about industry and technology as man being able to take the place of God in all of the ways. And and that seems to be a theme in sort of the the Nazi era as well, whereas um, all these individuals were not, were not really buying into that. It was, it was coming. I think they were, like you said, the 19th century connection, but it seems like there is a, a God connection there too, as part of it. I mean, I can imagine Sophie just um, because she talks about light so much in those, in her, especially the diary entry, she's always talking about, well, the light is hitting the tree and I'm walking through the forest and the light is doing X, Y, and Z. It would be the so antithetical for her to think about these mechanized versions creating a world like can you imagine sophie with art um with virtual reality right would totally reject that kind of this is this mm-hmm. is insane because it's godless right well she it, talks about the when she was at the ammunitions factory and the the other workers as if they have become possessed by the machines that they created mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, how sinister it is and how 
It's much more noble to be a, a, a street sweeper. Isn't there Russian science fiction that would be consistent with what Sophie is describing about humans becoming machines? Yeah, it was that was so prevalent in the futurists, the futurist movement um, in the 20s in Russia, also in Italy. But in Russia, they were absolutely obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it was, um, you know, the Soviet era was very atheistic and all about demolishing mm-hmm. God but they were obsessed with their trains and um, the, mm-hmm. all of that. You could imagine that she had read some of that, mm. but I was always struck in all of the letters about how much they loved Russia. Mm-hmm. The descriptions that um, uh, that Hans has of being out with the Russian peasants and and those vast expanses in Russia and hoping that he would see Russia again. I mean, he would have gotten into a heap of trouble in Germany if people had read what he wrote about the Russians. Uh, But it's a wonderfully poignant section of his diaries. Right. And you know, I, I relate to that so much as uh, someone who fell for Russia in my in my studies. And, and in all of his letters and the transcripts, Alexander was very clear to point out that he was not any fan of Bolshevism. I mean, that drove his family out of there. So they were not right. communist sympathizers or anything like right. that. But that connection to the, the Russian soul and the people and yeah. the, the normal people who, who knew their poets and connected with it so deeply mm-hmm. was very meaningful to them. Yeah. When I was in St. Petersburg, I went into one of those um, churches. They're, you know, the big. And I was, it was so dark, you know, and full of incense. And there were all these people. And then there were, um, there were priests there and people standing in line for blessings. And it was a very weird experience to come from the sunlight into that sort of dark cavernous kind of thing and I immediately thought of Hans Scholl because it was absolutely what he described in that one diary entry it was it was a perfect description mm-hmm. so so I do think mm-hmm. yeah there are just some interesting comparisons about how Russians were looking at the world how these young Germans were looking at the world they just weren't part of the political machine in either culture. I just think this is an interesting story. All their writings are interesting. I never have tired of reading and rereading them. Well, it's it's true. It, it reaffirms the fact that um, we are very much shaped by what we take in through reading, through the that kind of influence. And uh, that was that was a big message that I got from your class. I think it's a very important one. <laughs> yeah, good. good. Nobody else believes that anymore, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do wish you luck on this in this journey. Thank you. Well, that's one of the best parts is that it's it's never ending. I've you know there's no shortage of material to keep finding. So um, right, and it's right. To have spent so many years and so much time going deeper into it, it's one of the best things that I could have done. So I'm so grateful. So did did you end up doing a PhD with this stuff? No, no. I went to law and business school afterwards. So it's um, all been 
all been a, a freelance sort of project just on my own. Wow. And do you have a practice? Do you no. have another? Well, I actually, um, I, I wanted to go to law school because um, in high school, I met a human rights lawyer and I saw her as a person who was really doing big things in the world. And I wanted to be <laughs> like that. But law school was not for me. I, I completed it, but I actually failed the bar exam twice. And um, my life has been in the arts. I've coached musicians on how to develop their careers and trying to make sense of why do I keep getting pulled back into the arts and what do I do with this compulsion to deal with subjects that matter and to not sort of shy away yeah. from the the big things that are going on in our world. And um, I thought that was going to be as a lawyer, but that wasn't my way. And I think... Uh, Something and dealing with this subject matter might be how I find it. So I don't know. You know, especially as we go into the dark ages again with the rejection of science and the rejection of literacy. It's sort of an interesting project to try to keep this stuff alive against a backdrop where it's being rejected. Yeah, we have to prepare ourselves for dark times. And uh, this is the best way that I know how. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you for your time. And I wish you all the best. And I, I hope you know you've had a tremendous impact on me and many others. I'm incredibly honored. I'm incredibly honored.